I want to call the meeting to order. I want to thank everybody for coming today. And to those who are here and have traveled uh, extensively to be here, uh, I want to apologize on the front end for what's happening today. We have two votes at 1030, which means that people will be streaming in and out of the meeting. And secondly, unfortunately, uh, I understand there's a Democratic caucus meeting that was called uh, without, without talking to some of the chairmen. So uh, in any event, uh, that doesn't take away from the importance of this. I just hope that people will bear with us. We're at a historic turning point in the global fight to end modern slavery today, thanks to the incredible efforts of so many committed individuals, two of whom are with us today. Several are in the audience, and certainly many up here at the dais. Faith great based groups, aid organizations throughout the U.S., and just people around the world have come together around this issue that we're highlighting today. This is the third year that we've held a hearing to highlight, shine a light on Slavery Day. And the End It movement has been building for about 10 years now. People around the world are very, very familiar now with this scourge on mankind. Across the country, people have made personal statements uh, about the need to end modern slavery by wearing a red X like so many of us are doing today. And this year, um, on February 23rd, during a, during a Senate recess, uh, this day will take place. In marking end today, we highlight the horrific nature of modern slavery. We also highlight progress that's being made as the U.S. prepares to embark on an unprecedented global effort to end this scourge on humanity. And uh, we certainly have some pioneers today who've been very instrumental in laying the foundation for that. Starting with the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, there's been a growing awareness and increasingly effective anti-human trafficking work in the United States. Uh, this is important because as we begin to implement the authorization of the End Modern Slavery Initiative, to measurably and sustainably ramp up all of our efforts worldwide, we can build on what has occurred. And I want to take this moment to thank people here on the committee that unanimously passed out several years ago this bill um, and then continued to work to make sure after about a two-year process we actually passed the authorization. I think people understand appropriations are already in place. And now the real work begins, again, standing on the shoulders of our witnesses here today and so many others. Um, along the way, we've, had, we've seen efforts to make a difference, as I just mentioned. And our first witness today is Mr. Ashton Kutcher. He's the co-founder of THORN, an organization that works with law enforcement to rescue trafficking victims by leveraging the very technology you used in, to abuse and exploit them. We welcome him today. He, by the way, flew all night. He's working right now uh, on a film, and so he caught a red eye in after having dinner with his wife. Very, very smart man on Valentine's Day. <laughs> and, uh, and he's leaving immediately after this. Uh, but I'll tell you, if you knew of what he and his organization has done, it's inspirational. And the metrics that they're able to help us with, the, the way that they're able to interdict in advance now what's happening is phenomenal and a true testament to entrepreneurialism and people taking a risk, in this case, towards a social good. I had a few moments with him. I, I'm even more thankful uh, for him and, um, and his commitment to this and became interested uh, just by seeing that it was occurring and felt that he could do something about it. Um, we also welcome our second witness, Mr. Mrs. Elisa Massimino, 
President and Chief Executive Officer of Human Rights First, which is engaged in the fight against modern slavery. Uh, thank you so much for what you've been doing in your testimony today. We're also happy to have with us today the founders of Passion Movement and the Passion Church, Louis and Shelley Giglio. Um, I'll have to say that they are the people that brought awareness to me. They're the people that have instilled uh, the awareness in young people all across our country that want to be a part of ending this. I thank them for their personal inspiration and the inspiration they are to so many people around the world every day. We also have Jenny Brown, the campaign director of the End It Movement, uh, who obviously for 10 years has been making people aware. In many ways, uh, this awareness um, is what has led us today. We'd also, to today, we'd also like to welcome Mr. Tim Estes. Just serendipitously, this has nothing to do with our involvement. Uh, he heads a, he's CEO of Digital Reasoning, which is based in Tennessee, and they're actually using uh, intelligence to, to interdict and, and help uh, with the tools that Thorne is putting in place. I want to also thank Ernie Allen for being here as well. Ernie founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, one of our greatest leaders on this issue, uh, people in this movement knowing well. I also want to welcome former U.S. Representative Susan Molinari from Google, who's been involved in this even before uh, being involved with Google. So with that, thank you all for being here. It's a great day for us, a lot of work ahead. I'd like to introduce our outstanding uh, ranking member, Ben Cardin, and my friend. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you for making this one of the first hearings for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in this Congress. It speaks to the priority that we believe that we must pay to modern-day slavery trafficking. And we are proud of the progress that we have made uh, in, the, in regards to dealing with this issue. It's been thanks to U.S. leadership, many of the people in this room. Uh, Susan Melinari, it's nice to see you again. We served together in the, in the, the House of Representatives. It's Always a pleasure to have Senator McCain uh, on this committee. He, he served here for a while. Uh, I was a little suspicious when I saw him uh, in, the, uh, the ch in the facilities. I thought he was coming over to take our office space as well as our jurisdiction for the Armed Services Committee. That had me a little bit concerned, but it's always a pleasure. Came to, to counsel you. <laughs> <laughs> Your counsel is always welcomed, um, but it, it, uh, Senator McCain is one of our great international champions on human rights. And uh, he's always uh, very kind in the comments he makes about many of us, but we all have been mentored by Senator McCain on his passion to stand up for what is right uh, and uh, to do that regardless of the political consequences. When you stand up for human rights, you're standing up for what makes America the great nation it is. So Senator McCain, it's great to have you here and thank you for your incredible leadership. Mr. Chairman, We've been talking about trafficking for a long time. And quite frankly, it was the U.S. leadership, it was the congressional leadership that made this issue the priority of our nation and has made progress globally on trafficking. Whether it's trafficking for sex, or for labor issues, so many areas in which we have seen uh, people abused around the world. I wanna thank you for your leadership. Uh, it is tough to get anything done in this body, but through your persistent leadership, we've been able to leverage a very small amount of federal funds with private sector dollars that'll make a difference globally on uh, our fight against uh, trafficking. And 
Uh, you stuck with it, you got it done, and thank you for doing that. I want to thank Senator Menendez for his leadership on this issue. He's been one of the great champions on trafficking and standing up for the integrity of the Trafficking in Persons Report, uh, which uh, in the last administration, a Democratic administration, there was bipartisan criticism for the manner in which uh, the Obama administration, we believe, brought in factors that should not have been brought in to the rankings on the Trafficking in Persons Report. I'm proud of the work that's been done by the Helsinki Commission. I at one time had the opportunity to chair the Helsinki Commission. Uh, it was the Helsinki Commission that raised these issues in the International Forum. Chris Smith now is our special representative to the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly. He's made a career priority of dealing with trafficking. Mr. Chairman, as you can see, there have been members on both sides of the aisle to recognize that this indeed is modern day slavery. And we have a responsibility to root this out wherever we find it. And it cannot be compromised for other areas. This is something that in and of itself must be our highest priority. So we can celebrate the success that we've had, but we know that too many people are at risk. Yeah. I visited uh, victim centers and have seen the victims of trafficking. I've seen the victims of trafficking in Europe. I've seen the victims of trafficking in Asia. I've seen the victims of trafficking in the United States. And it's heartbreaking. And we know that they're victims, and we need to recognize them as victims. I want to make just one other comment, if I might. And that is, there are many reasons I was concerned about the President's executive order on immigration and refugees. But one of the reasons is the impact it has on victims of trafficking. I'm not clear whether those who had T visas would in fact still be, who are victims of trafficking, could have come into this country under that ban. I know that many of the refugees from, from Syria are, are potential victims, are our victims of trafficking that we are, that our refugee program has a major impact. We know that the Rohingya population of Burma uh, were subject to trafficking. Many were allowed to come to the United States that were put on hold as a result, were put on hold as a result of the President's executive order. So I just urge us that as we look at our priorities for protecting those who are victims, that we recognize that we, in our zeal to protect our nation on things like this executive order, has an impact on protecting people from the scourge of trafficking in modern-day slavery. And uh, I would just urge us to make sure that when we say this is going to be our priority, that we are going to protect these victims, that we look for every possible way in order to be able to accomplish these goals. As the chairman said originally, I apologize that uh, the Democratic members are going to have some conflicts. And there's some conflicts on four votes. But I must tell you, this is a very, very important hearing, and one we thank our witnesses, and we thank the interest that we have from the private sector to work with us to find ways that we can be more effective in stopping modern-day slavery. Thank you so much. And uh, with that, we'll turn to uh, my friend and, as Ben mentioned, someone who's been fighting uh, for the rights of people who don't have them all around the world, um, one of the crankiest members that we have here in the United States Senate. Um, but we're glad that he has come to our come to our hearing today, and, and uh, I want to thank you personally for your and Cindy's leadership on this issue. Um, I want to thank you also for allowing the Modern Slavery Initiative to be carried 
on the NDAA last year. Uh, thank you for hanging with us, but showing the leadership you have. I know you're going to make a few comments. We appreciate that, and we introduce you now. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. I will now translate the Chairman's remarks into English. <laughs> I want to, I, I, in the interest of time, Mr. Chairman, I would like my statement to be made part of the record and just say that the reason why I'm here is to thank you. Thanks, Senator Cardin. Thanks, Senator Menendez, especially, and all members of the committee for this bipartisan effort. If it had not been for yours and Senator Cardin's tenacity and de dedication to this issue, it, wouldn't, it would not have passed into law as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. So I want to thank you, and I want to thank all members of this committee for their effort and their highlighting this terrible, terrible issue that unfortunately, thanks to a lot of things, including social networking, seems to be growing rather than lessening throughout the world. I also want to thank Elisa and Ashton. And Ashton, you were better looking in the movies. Than, anyway, <laughs> the, the, <coughs> anyway, anyway, I, I want to. <laughs> I, I want to. I want to thank thank you very much. And I personal note, I'm proud of my home state of Arizona for being a leader on the issue. I applaud the work of my wife, Cindy, for years has dedicated her time and effort on this. But uh, I want to thank Thorne especially for their efforts. Um, and, and just finally, Mr. Chairman, this issue is so terrible and so heart-wrenching and so compelling that a lot of times some of us would rather talk about more pleasant things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thank you for everything that you and members of this committee, but especially you and Ben, have done in furthering this effort. And uh, someday it will, it will pay off. And we will hear from our witnesses of the compelling stories that are so deeply moving. And I can't think, of, frankly, of a higher priority. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you. With that, uh, and setting the stage for the fact that we have 27 million people around the world today that as we sit here in this hearing are living in slavery, 24% of those are in sexual servitude, 76% are living, um, working in, living in cages at night, working in fishing, working in brick kilns, working in rug manufacturing. We have two of the best witnesses we could possibly have and people who have committed their lives and resources to this. Our first witness is Mr. Ashton Kutcher, co-founder of the Thorn Digital Defenders of Children. And Ashton, I just want to say again, your story, um, for those people who are involved in venture capital and entrepreneurialism, um, be uplifting to see what you have done solely uh, to help other people. I look forward to your testimony. Our second witness today is Elisa Massimoni, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Human Rights First. We thank you again for being here. If you would give your testimony and the order introduced, uh, any written documents I have without objection will be entered into the record. Again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, it is an honor to be here. Um, as a young man uh, raised and, and, and brought up in the public school system, I pledge my allegiance to that flag 
every single day. And the honor, maybe one of the greatest honors in my life today is to be here uh, and leverage the work that, that I've done as testimony that may in some way benefit this nation that I love. I'd like to start by saying thank you to Chairman Corker for your leadership in this endeavor and to Senator Cardin. Uh, your leadership has been uh, extraordinary and I'd like to also say thank you to the rest of the committee that has supported this effort. This is a bipartisan effort and in a country that is riddled with bipartisan separation on so many things. Slavery seems to come up as one of these issues that we can all agree upon. And I applaud you for your agreement and I believe in you and your leadership and your ability to take us out of it. I'm here today to defend the right to pursue happiness. It's a simple notion, the right to pursue happiness. It's bestowed upon all of us by our Constitution. Every citizen of this country has the right to pursue it. And I believe that it, it, it is incumbent upon us as citizens of this nation, as Americans, to bestow that right upon others, upon each other, and upon the rest of the world. But the right to pursue happiness for so many is stripped away. It's raped. It's abused. It's taken by force, fraud, or coercion. It is sold for the momentary happiness of another. Now, this is about the time uh, when I start talking about politics that the internet trolls tell me to stick to my day job. Uh, so I'd like to talk about my day job. My day job is as the chairman and the co-founder of Thorn. We build software to fight human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of children. And that's our core mission. My other day job is that of the father of two, a two-month-old and a two-year-old. And as part of that job that I take very seriously, I believe that it is my effort to defend their right to pursue happiness and to ensure a society and government that defends it as well. As part of my anti-trafficking work, I've met victims in Russia. I've met victims in India. I've met victims that have been trafficked from Mexico, victims in New York and New Jersey and all across our country. I've been on FBI raids where I've seen things that no person should ever see. I've seen video content of a child that's the same age as mine being raped by an American man that was a sex tourist in Cambodia. And this child was so conditioned by her environment that she thought she was engaging in play. I've been on the other end of a phone call from my team asking for my help because we had received a call from the Department of Homeland Security telling us that a seven-year-old girl was being sexually abused and that content was being spread around the dark web and she had been being abused and they'd watched her for three years and they could not find the perpetrator. Asking us for help. We were the last line of defense. An actor and his foundation were the potential last line of defense. That's my day job, and I'm sticking to it. 
I'd like to tell you a story about a 15-year-old girl in Oakland. We'll call her Amy. Amy met a man online, uh, started talking to him. A short while later, they met in person. Within hours, Amy was abused, raped, and forced into trafficking. She was sold for sex. This isn't an isolated incident. There's not much that's unusual about it. The only unusual thing is that Amy was found and returned to her family within three days using the software that we created, a tool called Spotlight. And in an effort to protect its capacity over time, I won't give much detail about what it does, but it's a tool that can be used by law enforcement to prioritize their caseload. It's a neural net. It gets smarter over time. It gets better and it gets more efficient as people use it. And it's working. In six months, with 25% of our users reporting, we've identified over 6,000 trafficking victims, 2,000 of which are minors. This tool is in the hands of 4,000 law enforcement officials and 900 agencies. And we're reducing the investigation time by 60%. This tool is effective, it's efficient, it's nimble, it's better, it's smarter. Now, there's often a misconception about technology that in some way it is the generator of some evil, that it's creating job displacement, and that it enables violence and malice acts. But as an entrepreneur and as a venture capitalist in the technology field, I see technology as simply a tool, a tool without will. The will is the user of that technology, and I think it's an important distinction. An airplane is a tool. It's a piece of technology. And under the right hands, it's used for mass global transit. And under the wrong hands, it can be flown into buildings. Technology can be used to enable slavery, but it can also be used to disable slavery. And that's what we're doing. I alluded to a phone call that we got from the Department of Homeland Security about this girl that was being trafficked on the dark web. Now, it's interesting to note that the dark web was created in the mid-90s. It was a tool that was created by the Naval Research Lab called TOR, a tool with absolute purpose and positive intention for sharing intelligence communications anonymously. It's also been used to help people who are, are, are being disenfranchised by their government within political dissent in, in oppressive regimes. But on the other side, it's used for trafficking for drug trafficking, for weapons trafficking, and for human trafficking. And it's also the warehouse for some of the most offensive child abuse images in the world. Now, when the Department of Homeland Security called us and asked for our help and asked if we had a tool, I had to say no. And it devastated me. It haunted me. Because for the next three months, I had to go to sleep every night and think about that little girl that was still being abused. And the fact that if I built the right thing, we could save her. So that's what we did. And now, if I got that phone call from Greg, wherever you're at, <laughs> the answer would be yes. We've taken these investigation times of dark web material from three years down to what we believe can be three weeks. The tool is called Solus. Once again, I won't go into too much detail about the tool, but it's being used by 40 agencies across the world today in beta, and we believe that it's going to yield extraordinary results. And just like 
spotlight, it gets smarter and more efficient and more cost effective over time. So where do we go from here? What do we need? Obviously, we need money. We need financing in order to build these tools. Technology is expensive to build, but the beauty of technology is once you build the warehouse, it gets more efficient and, and more cost effective over time. I might be able to present to you a government initiative where next year I come back and ask for less. And to me, that's, that's like, it seems extraordinary. The technology we're building is efficient, it works, it's nimble because traffickers change their modus operandi and we can change ours as well, just as efficiently, if not more efficiently as they can. It's enduring and it only gets smarter with time. We also are collecting data, we have KPIs. We actually understand that if we're delivering value, we increase our efforts in that area. If we're not delivering value, we shut it down. And it's a quantifiable solution. One of my mentors told me, don't go after this issue if you can't come up with a quantifiable solution. We can quantify it and we can make the work that we're doing and the initiatives that you put forth accountable. My second recommendation is to continue to foster these private-public partnerships. A spotlight was only enabled by the McCain Institution uh, and the full support of Cindy McCain and a man that I find to be not only a war hero, but a hero to this issue, John McCain. It wasn't just created by them. There was extraordinary support from the private sector. Uh, company Digital Reasoning out of Tennessee stepped up to the plate. They offered us effort. They offered us engineers. They offered us support and pro bono work. We've had the support of companies that oftentimes war with each other, from Google to Microsoft to AWS to Facebook. And some of our other technology initiatives include many, many other private companies. It's vital to our success. These private-public partnerships are the key. The third thing I'd like to highlight is the pipeline. You know, we sit at the intersection of discovery of these victims, but the pipeline in and the pipeline out are just as vital and just as important, and addressing them are just as important. I'd, I'd like to highlight one thing in particular, that being the foster care system. There are 500,000 kids in foster care today. I, I was astonished to find out that 70% of the inmates in the prison across this country have touched the foster care system, and 80% of the people on death row were at some point in time exposed to the foster care system. 50% of these kids will not graduate high school and 95% of them will not get a college degree. But the most staggering statistic that I found was that foster care children are four times more likely to be exposed to sexual abuse. That's a breeding ground for trafficking. I promise you that's a breeding ground for trafficking. But the reason I looked at foster care is that it's a microcosm. It's, it's a sample set that we have pretty extraordinary data around to date, even though we can't seem to fix it. It's a microcosm for what happens when displacement happens abroad as the unintended consequences of our actions or inactions in the rest of the world. When people are left out, when they're neglected, when they're not supported, and when they're not given the love that they need, to grow, it becomes an incubator for trafficking. And this refugee crisis, if, if, you, if we want to be serious about ending slavery, we cannot ignore it and we cannot ignore our support for this issue in that space. 
because otherwise we're going to deal with it for years to come. The outbound pipeline, there's just not enough beds. The bottom line is, once, people, once someone is exposed to this level of abuse, it's a mental health issue. And there aren't enough beds, there's not enough support, and we have to have the resources on the other side, otherwise the recidivism, the recidivism rates are through the roof. It's, it, it's astonishing, because when Maslow's hierarchy and needs are not being met, people resort to survival, and if this is their means of survival, and the only source of love that they have in their life, that's what they go for. So we have to address the pipeline out, and we have to create support systems on the other end. It's not an entitlement. It's a demand to end slavery. My fourth and final recommendation is the bifurcation of sex trafficking and labor trafficking. They're both aberrations. They're both awful. They're both slavery. And they're both punitive, in fact. But the solution sets are highly differentiated. When you look at sex trafficking, a victim is most often present at the incident of commerce. And, and this, this provides an opportunity for, for drastic intervention. Whereas in labor trafficking, the victims are being hidden behind the manufacturers and the merchandisers. And it requires an entirely different set of legislation and proactivity and enforcement in order to shut it down. Now, there's a lot of rhetoric that's going on in the world right now about job creation in the United States. Well, if we want to create jobs in the United States, I would ask you to consider eliminating slavery from the pipelines of corporations. Because a lot of that slavery is happening abroad. And if we ask those corporations under extreme pressure that if you don't change it, you are going to be penalized. And if you don't clean up that pipeline, it's going to mean trouble. And, and they're, they're forced with two decisions. They can either clean up the pipeline abroad or they can move the jobs to the United States of America where they can be regulated and supported. The, bringing jobs to America can be the consequence of doing the right thing or it can be the consequence of doing the wrong thing. But that choice is up to you. Now, it's not lost on me that all of this disruption in our marketplaces is going to have economic re backlash. Like, that is not lost on me at all. But I ask you, do you believe that Abraham Lincoln had to consider the economic backlash of shutting down the cotton fields in the South when he shut down slavery? Because I'm sure that weighed on his mind. You know, happiness can be given to no man. It must be earned. It must be earned through, through generosity and through purpose. But the right to pursue it, the right to pursue it is every man's right. And I beg of you that if you give people the right to pursue it, what you may find in return is happiness for yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lisa. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, wow, I'm just digesting all of that incredible uh, passion and uh, intelligence and purpose from you and, um, and feeling regretful that I have to follow it. But, <laughs> uh, but thank you also, uh, Ashton, for your uh, for turning your, your talent, your profile, uh, your smarts to this important issue. 
Thanks to this committee, um, and particularly thank you uh, to you, Mr. Chairman, for your outstanding leadership on this issue. We are so grateful for your efforts to promote a stronger American leadership in this fight. Slavery is a devastating assault on human dignity. Perpetrators prey on the most vulnerable among us, refugees, children, the poor. It's a pressing global problem that affects and implicates the United States. It involves multinational supply chains, criminal enterprises, and the very terrorists and extremists that our nation has vowed to combat. It tests our country's willingness to uphold fundamental rights at home and to challenge other governments to do the same. Our country is both a source and destination country for trafficking victims. And traffickers earn an estimated $150 billion annually in illicit profits, while NGOs like ours and governments worldwide spend only about $124 million each year to combat it. That is simply not a fair fight. Meanwhile, American workers are forced to compete against free labor as companies take advantage of the global failure to enforce anti-slavery laws. Increasingly, Organized crime rings and international terrorist organizations traffic in human beings to accumulate wealth and power. And when refugees fleeing violence in Syria, Iraq, and other regions plagued by terrorism and political instability don't have pathways to safety, they become easy marks for extremists to exploit. Congress and the administration ought to deepen their commitment to combating slavery, not only because of the moral and economic implications, but also because of the national security risks posed by corruption, terrorism, and organized crime. At Human Rights First, our mission is to foster American global leadership on human rights. We believe that standing up for the rights of all people is not only a moral obligation, but it's a vital national interest and in that our country is strongest when our policies and actions match our ideals. For nearly 40 years, we've worked to ensure that the United States acts as a beacon on human rights in a world that sorely needs American leadership. American efforts to end modern slavery are critical, not only to prevent human trafficking here at home, but also to ensure that our country sets an example for others. That's why we need to work harder to eliminate slave labor from the supply chains of American companies and to empower federal law enforcement agencies, which have deep expertise in prosecuting cross-border organized crime, to focus greater attention on ending impunity for traffickers and their enablers. Right now, slavery is a low-risk enterprise for the bad guys. According to the State Department's most recent trafficking in persons report, there were just over 6,600 trafficking convictions globally in 2015, and only 297 of those were here in the United States. Now that might sound like a lot, but when you consider that there are nearly 21 million people enslaved around the world today, that's a pitifully small number. We have to do better. The United States has made important progress in the fight against modern slavery, and this committee has really been a key driver of that progress. The bipartisan cooperation and concern that's been demonstrated by this committee is a model for the future of our country. Today, Human Rights First is releasing a new congressional blueprint for action to dismantle the business of modern slavery, in which we detail additional measures that Congress should take. Modern slavery is a complex global crime, and we have to tackle it using a range of strategies. In my written testimony, I detail our recommendations, and they include using the funds authorized by the End Modern Slavery Act to combat trafficking globally and to attract new resources from other governments and private donors, bolstering the Trafficking Victim Protection Act to ensure that law enforcement and prosecutors have adequate resources to hold traffickers accountable, intensifying enforcement of the Tariff Act's ban on importation of goods made with slave labor, 
fully leveraging the power of the U.S. government, contracting to make sure we're not purchasing goods and services made with slave labor, and shielding the TIP report from political influence by passing the bill recently introduced by Senator Menendez and Senator Rubio. Each of those measures is critically important, but we also have to pay attention to prevention. Traffickers are ruthless and opportunistic. They are drawn like sharks to those in distress. And it's hard to imagine people in more distress today than refugees. In fact, with the possible exception of Vladimir Putin, nobody benefits more from the refugee crisis than those in the business of modern slavery. The truth is we simply cannot combat slavery without attending to those most vulnerable to it. And today, more than ever, that means helping refugees. As the State Department explained in last year's TIP report, refugees are, quote, prime targets for tra traffickers and refugee camps are ideal locations for them to operate. The majority of the world's refugees are women and children, and the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking reports that since 2011, thousands of them, thousands, have disappeared, presumably abducted for purposes of trafficking-related exploitation. The UN Rapporteur also concluded that one of the primary causes of the rise in trafficking worldwide is increasingly restrictive and exclusionary immigration policies. According to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, 10% of the world's refugee population is in urgent need of resettlement. Yet last year, only 1% were moved to places of safety. In light of this crisis, the recent executive order blocking the resettlement of Syrian refugees and reducing refugee admissions and halting the entire refugee resettlement program for the foreseeable future is particularly cruel. Turning our backs on the people most vulnerable to slavery, the very people this committee has worked so hard to help, not only breaks faith with our most cherished ideals, but it's a gift to those who profit from human misery. As a nation that once pledged to stand firm for the non-negotiable demands of human dignity, I think it's unconscionable. It's not who we are, it's not what we stand for. Time and again, national security leaders from Republican and Democratic administrations have testified that protecting refugees does not put Americans at risk. On the contrary, accepting Syrian and other refugees actually makes us safer by helping them the U.S. safeguards the stability of our allies that are hosting the vast majority of refugees, counters the warped vision of extremists that we are somehow at war with Islam, and strengthens our moral credibility, credibility that can be leveraged on other issues. 32 of our nation's most prominent national security leaders, retired flag officers, former government officials, including the former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, former National Security Advisor, Steve Hadley, and former director of the National Counterterrorism Center, said in this statement, and I quote, despite America's role as the global leader in resettling refugees, many voices call for closed doors rather than open arms. To give in to such impulses would represent a mistake of historic proportions. The so-called extreme vetting that's sought by the administration is already happening. It takes place over many months. It involves multiple law enforcement and intelligence agencies. And the blanket ban that's been proposed would not block terrorists. It would, our nation's national security officials already do that. But it would block people forced to flee because of persecution and violence inflicted by repressive regimes and terrorist groups. And it'll block people that are vulnerable to the parasitic criminals and violent extremists who profit from the global slave trade. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I know how deeply you care about ending the scourge of modern slavery. And I urge you to allow your compassion for its victims to inform your position on refugees. Anyone who seeks to deprive traffickers of their ability to prey on vulnerable people cannot in good conscience slam the door on refugees. We are counting on you 
to fight any executive action that would sacrifice more innocent women and children to the global slave trade. In particular, I urge you to support Senator Feinstein's bill that would rescind the executive order. In the midst of the biggest crisis, refugee crisis since World War II, the world is really watching what we do. If we want our country to be a global leader in the fight against modern slavery, we can't turn our backs on the very people most likely to become its victims. Thank you. Thank you. Ashton, I was uh, going to ask you a different question, but after hearing your opening comments, um, I'm going I'm to reframe it. I think you shared how you became involved in this and your compassion and passion for ending it, um, and we thank you for that. We, we've embarked on a program now that is a public-private partnership of major proportion. Um, it's where the U.S. would lead. Um, we'd get other governments to help on a two-to-one basis and the private sector to help on a three-to-one basis to put in place an effort that would have metrics, an effort where we would be able to measure results, measure the problem, measure results. Um, and I just wonder, based on the experiences that you've had, uh, in the private sector, um, establishing uh, metrics and models to end this, uh, this scourge on mankind. What kind of advice would you give us as we set up this international effort that's based here but led by the United States? Um, I think my, my first piece of advice uh, would be to lead with compassion as you approach these private sector companies. Um, these companies have customers and they care about their customers and they want their customers to know that they're doing the right thing. And I think great companies have a conscience that promote them to actually do the right thing. Um, the second thing, I, I mean, you, you basically said it in your question to some degree, which is, uh, you have to be able to measure results. Um, and I, I oftentimes believe that if, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. And if you can't improve it, you're, you're working blindly. Um, and, but also, I, what I would encourage is to ensure that whatever buckets of capital are, are being deployed, um, to, to actually do them, to deploy that capital in a way where there isn't a risk aversion in, in shooting for the fences. Um, if, if what it is that you're trying to apply to the issue doesn't have a potential 10x outcome, uh, but also the same potential to fail, uh, you may not get the results that you want. Uh, and, and as I work with entrepreneurs uh, across the country, the extraordinary thing about the entrepreneurs I work with in Silicon Valley is that they're not afraid to fail. It's, it's unbelievable. As a kid from Iowa that was taught to be responsible at everything and make sure every dollar counts, they're just, they just go for it, like full blown. And so if you deploy the capital in a way that allows people the opportunity to fail, but also massively succeed, you may find that you have much greater outcomes than what you do by making the safe choices with the deployment of the capital in large chunks into you know, some well, obviously, that's you know the good field to do. You know, it, 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 oftentimes, uh, the greatest idea comes when when those people aren't afraid to fail, and so giving them permission to go for shoot for the fences, I think, is an important uh, is an important piece of the puzzle. 
I'm going to turn to Senator Menendez. We, until, these people are coming back, by the way. We've got a vote that's underway. I think we're going to try to time it where we do both at one time. Um, Senator Menendez, uh, do, you want to, do you want to go and come back? Uh, yeah, Mr. Chairman, I think there's only two minutes, two minutes left in the vote, so I, I do intend to come back, notwithstanding the caucus. So. Okay. So, so here's what we're going to do, and this is strange, but we're going to recess for just a moment until the next person comes back, and we'll resume. Um, and I apologize for this, but uh, uh, I'm sure lots of people would like to have their photograph taken. I prefer not to talk to no one. Okay. <laughs> we'll be back. Although I do it quite often. We're, at, we're in recess until, uh, until someone returns. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our witnesses very much. Uh, as you're well aware, we, we, uh, we have votes going on right now. But uh, uh, with the chairman's guidance, uh, we shall continue here uh, out of respect for your time. Um, we'll begin with my own questions. As other members roll in, we'll, we'll entertain those. But uh, Mr. Kuchner and Ms. Massimino, um, thank you so much for your leadership. Uh, this is such an important area. We're, we're shining a national spotlight on the importance of it, and uh, I'm just so grateful uh, for your efforts. Do you both agree, uh, as you work on this issue, that the State Department's annual trafficking in persons report is a valuable resource in your efforts to fight human trafficking and the scourge of modern slavery? Yes? I'm, yes, absolutely, yeah. we do. I, and, I, I do. And presumably, you, you can't solve a problem if you don't know how big it is. That's right. So presumably, we want that report to be as accurate and as comprehensive as possible, right? We do. Okay. Yes. These are what we call leading questions in the profession, <laughs> right? So tomorrow, I plan to introduce uh, a piece of legislation called the Department of State and United States Agency for International Development Accountability Act of 2017. Uh, the legislation is needed to provide uh, this committee greater transparency regarding the more than 180 uh, General Accountability Office recommendations for the Department of State and USAID that haven't been fully implemented. And among the recommendations are, are at least two or three recommendations pertaining to this very area about which you and, and so many others are passionate. The legislation will enable Congress and this committee to conduct even more effective oversight, something uh, we can always improve upon. It would require state and USAID to provide a timeline for implementation of these anti-trafficking uh, proposals as well as other proposals. And uh, it would ensure that any GAO recommendation uh, that is not implemented, uh, we, we're certain as to, as to why that is, given some rationale for that. So. Uh, given the large number of open recommendations, uh, it would be my hope that uh, uh, most would be implemented and uh, that we can get uh, bipartisan support for this effort. So uh, I, I'm inviting members of, of uh, uh, both sides of the aisle to, to uh, work with me on this legislation. We'll be dropping it tomorrow. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask both of our, our witnesses um, uh, about uh, about the, the, the growing impact of, of uh, sexual exploitation, forced labor, uh, what we generally call modern slavery, um, here in, in, in our own country. Um, 
some of my thinking on this issue is informed by good work that has been done uh, in, in my own state of Indiana with uh, uh, the, the leadership of the Indiana Attorney General, uh, our former U.S. Attorney, and now so many other stakeholders in our state, uh, we have put together a report in our state, the, the 2016 Indiana State Report on Human Trafficking. Typically, we ask for unanimous consent to enter this into the record. Uh, I consent to have it entered into the record. <laughs> and and um, uh, I think this will be instructive uh, to further your efforts and and uh, those of others uh, who are working on this issue. Uh, this was the product, this report and the related initiatives in my own state of Indiana. Uh, it was a product of a public-private partnership uh, to uh, address the unique challenges uh, that uh, our state and, and others are facing. The report indicates that uh, uh, the coalition of service providers served 178 trafficked youth in 2016 alone. 178 people in my home state of Indiana. Of those youth under age 21 served by Indiana providers statewide in, in 2016, nearly all were girls, 94%. As a father of, of three young girls, um, I feel particularly passionate about the need to address this. Um, but. Um, I note that uh, this is something that afflicts both genders as well. The report found nearly 30% of those impacted are 15 or younger, and more than 10% are between the ages of 12 and 14. All of my children are younger than that. And Indiana victims were as young as seven when first trafficked. These statistics are, of course, heartbreaking. They speak to the broader challenges we face nationally and internationally. If you could each speak to whether the trend lines in the state of Indiana uh, are reflective of your findings across the country. With respect to, I, yeah, with respect to uh, sex trafficking. The ages, yeah, the I, gender. So uh, most studies have found that the average age of entry into sex trafficking is about 12 years old. Um, and uh, I think most of the, the numbers that you're finding in your state are accurate. Uh, I would. You know, relative to the legislation uh, that you were alluding to earlier, I, I would like to ask, then what? Uh, so we measure it. We know it's a problem. But then what? And, and, I, and, and, and then what are the consequences if the reporting isn't there? And what is the consequences if they don't use the tools, if the tools aren't being used? I, I'm just curious about that relative to that legislation. I'd be happy to indulge that question. Uh, so working with the chairman and, and the ranking member and, and people on both sides of the aisle, uh, I think we should make every effort uh, to make sure that the State Department has a specific, concrete uh, plan of action, comprehensive in nature, that would arrest this problem um, internationally, since that's the focus of the State Department. We also need to have uh, a domestic uh, a range of, of solutions to this. And then we need to resource. We need to resource our action plans at the state level, at the federal level. Uh, I know that's been a point of emphasis uh, in your own testimony. Here on, on this committee, uh, perhaps the first step is, is to see that members on both si sides of the aisle continue to work to push a, a, uh, an authorizing bill, something the chairman has really shown some leadership on recently. 
uh, and uh, to the extent we can include human trafficking and other things moving forward on that, that's, that's uh, part answer to your question. So, uh, Ms. Massimino, do you have additional thoughts on, on the trend lines uh, well, in I, Indiana versus the country? I, I do. I, I do think those are reflective of what we see. I also want to say I, I, uh, I think it's really important, the state-level focus on trafficking. Um, you know, this, as I said, is a big global problem, very complex, and there are lots of different ways we need to tackle it. Um, but it's really quite important. The, that, that sounds like extraordinary leadership at the state level uh, to be tackling these issues really kind of close to home. And, you know, one of the things uh, that, uh, that you hear heard from both of us is the importance of, you know, reporting is for the purpose of being able to measure progress, right? And to, and to get data so you know what strategies are working. One of the things that Human Rights First has been really focused on is making sure that state and federal law enforcement have the resources that they need to go after um, higher up in the food chain, if you will, of, of these criminal enterprises that are exploiting people, um, both on labor and sex trafficking. You know, labor trafficking cases are a much smaller percentage of the overall um, uh, uh, prosecutions that happen, but there are a greater percentage of victims that are in the labor uh, trafficking area. And they're much more complex and expensive cases to bring, um, but they're, they're really important. And I think uh, that Congress should pay particular attention to making sure that these human trafficking prosecution units are well-funded and can work in coalition at the state and uh, local and federal level law enforcement to integrate the solutions to those problems. You also mentioned the public-private partnership piece. I did, and that was my next question, so thank you for anticipating it, so that <laughs> I don't have to cut into the chairman's time now that uh, he's re-entered the room. Maybe you could speak to the importance of that, each of you. Uh, I know, uh, Mr. Kuchner, you mentioned it in your testimony as well. IPATH is a uh, the Indiana State Report on Human Trafficking and, and the entity it created uh, to help fight this scourge in our own state. Um, is it's, it's a not-for-profit initiative. There, there are over 75 organizations statewide focused on collectively addressing this issue, and uh, perhaps you could speak to the importance of these sorts of public-private partnerships uh, in, in addressing modern slavery, each of you. Thank you. Sure. Um, just to touch on, on uh, the point that Elise was making, I, I think I think another thing that, that shouldn't be lost is um, the focus on uh, demand prosecution uh, in the space. Uh, these are victims. Yeah. You said it yourself, that it, these kids are 12 years old, 13 years old. Yeah. That's, that's not a criminal, that's a victim of a crime. And if we're not prosecuting the buyers, if we're not prosecuting the traffickers, not just for trafficking, but that's statutory rape. And it should be treated as statutory rape and prosecuted as rape. And, and, I, and I, I don't think that we do a good enough job yet of addressing that issue in that way. Do either of you have thoughts on, on what we might do to bring more uh, of these individuals to justice, to well, prosecute them? Well, it's, it's my understanding that there's an initiative underway currently that will address this. Uh, in the in, in, within the judiciary system, and I and, and I think that the best thing that we can do is to support that initiative. Continue to support that. Yeah. 
I think also making sure that um, these safe harbor provisions it, that have had so much bipartisan support here in Congress that would protect, uh, treat victims like victims uh, are, are very, very important. The public-private partnership uh, aspect of this, I think, is absolutely key. You know, uh, there's a lot that government can do and should be doing um, that all governments uh, uh, globally should be doing and, and collaborating together on this. Um, but as Ashton pointed out, the supply chain issue, the, 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 the pipeline into slavery, we have to be looking at that. And so I would say the public, there, there should be kind of three Ps in this uh, public-private partnership. It should be uh, um, also the, the private sector companies, American companies in particular. You know, when I talk about American leadership on this issue, I don't just mean the American government. I mean all of us, uh, and, and in many places in the world, American companies are the American brand. So making sure that we enlist uh, those companies, especially now, now that uh, you all have, have passed uh, legislation that amends the Tariff Act, which for decades allowed for this importation of child-made and slave-made labor through this consumptive demand loophole that was in existence, you have closed that loophole down. And that is a potentially transformational thing in the world of human trafficking. Now we have to make sure that, um, that it's enforced, that the Department of Homeland Security enforces it, that companies understand what they need to do. And most companies don't want anything to do with, with slavery. Um, but many of them don't understand what they need to do uh, to look at their supply chains and make sure that there's no forced labor in there or no child labor. So we have to come together to talk about that. And one of the things that you all could do, um, a report was due to you from the Department of Homeland Security, I think back in August, on how they're implementing this very important new provision uh, that you passed. And it hasn't, it hasn't been submitted yet. So I would urge you to ask for that. Um, and we would love to come in and talk with you about it. Well, thank you. Thanks for uh, your ideas and uh, uh, again for your counsel on this. And, and uh, we'll continue to stay vigilant uh, even when the Klieg lights are off. And, and that's really the important thing with respect to our oversight role. And um, uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming back and spelling in that way. I very much appreciate it. I, I've had two, um, two experiences, I guess, that had a big impact on me. One was hearing the statement of uh, someone in the audience, uh, Louis Giglio, uh, speaking uh, to his congregation saying, if not you, who? And I think we all know what that means. And, and you know, we together uh, who hear that message um, need to be the people who, who are involved ourselves in ending this. The other was experiencing uh, a group of about 20 young ladies in the Philippines um, going to the, the police department there, seeing what a U.S. private entity was doing to teach them about prosecution. Um, seeing how this is a crime of opportunity. Most people think this is largely uh, uh, the mafia, and they definitely are involved. But it's really, as you both know, a, a lot of small business people that take advantage. They have dominion over people, and they use this to make money. 
But part of it, part of our efforts, and we need to measure this and we need to end it, and that needs to be our focus, part of the effort also has to do with what we do with victims after they've been victimized. And one of the efforts that to me was so impressive was seeing how these young ladies who maybe were 13 or 15 and maybe they were in the rural part of the Philippines and maybe a gentleman came by and said, hey, how would you like to go to Manila for the day? And they find themselves in Malaysia in a brothel for seven or eight years or they find themselves uh, in a place that they cannot get out of, but they also have to have a place to go. They have to have a, a place to be protected from people who otherwise would kill them for testifying against them. Um, they've got to have a way of coming back into society. Could you speak to personal experiences there and, and what we need to do as a nation working with others to address that component also? Sure. Um, this is the pipeline out. Um, I, there, there are four or five organizations domestically uh, that I think are doing extraordinary work. Uh, there's an organization called My Life, My Choice, uh, Journey Out, Courtney's House, Rebecca Bender Initiative, and GEMS. Um, I've had the privilege to spend some time uh, with GEMS and look at the organization and uh, sort of assess the effectiveness of it. Um, they do extraordinary work. They recognize these victims as victims. They do the best they can to rehabilitate them. Um, I think one of the things that we can definitely do is look across that sector of NGOs and find the ones that are, that are the most effective and then try to assess what the best practices of each one of those individual organizations are uh, and, and then replicate that and grow it. Um, you know, as you said, as, as I said, I think there has to be accountability in our spending relative to this, but there are some simple low-hanging opportunities within these organizations that I actually think the private sector can come in and be drastically supportive. I mean, the administration roles within these organizations are being done a lot of times on these kinds of books. Um, and I think that there's the enterprise software that they could be quickly, they could be given away for free by many private companies and that could create massive efficiencies inside of these organizations. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, you have to have a place to keep these people. They're, you know, I was in Russia and the girls that were getting let out of the orphanages all, all get let out at about the same age and the traffickers would circle the orphanages waiting for those girls to hit that, that prime age where they could use them. So if, if people don't have a place to go, if they don't have an environment of love and support, and then the, the expertise to help them with the mental health issue of the abuse that they've endured, they don't get better. And so I, I, I think mental health is a, a gigantic issue in this country in a, in a lot of ways. And I think that we need to really look at this not only as a, as a slavery issue, but as a mental health issue and ensure that, that the finances and the support is, is going into that arena as such. This is a problem globally as well. Uh, it's, it's very similar. Uh, you know, we, um, we have worked 
closely with many Yazidi women. We gave our Human Rights Award last year to a, a Yazidi woman activist who is, she and her husband are rescuing women from, uh, who have been uh, abducted and are being held in sexual slavery by ISIS. Um, and these women are so traumatized. Uh, they're now barred from coming here under this order, but they're, you know, they have said, if you can't save us from this, then just bomb us because we can't survive this. And you know, one of the things that I think the United States could be doing there, they need mental health services desperately, um, even if they can't come here to get them. And I think there's more that we could be doing to um, fund organizations that, so that can provide those kinds of services to women who have suffered just unspeakable uh, horror. Many of them are children. Thank you. Senator Menendez is back, and uh, he was the lead other sponsor of this legislation and uh, has been my friend and certainly an advocate for victims and human rights. So I thank you and look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I'd ask to submit into the record uh, Human Rights First's uh, blueprint for Congress, how to dismantle the business of human trafficking. Without objection. Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, first of all, let me uh, say that uh, my experience in the Senate, I was speaking to Senator Young yesterday about the difference between the House and the Senate where we both have served, is the, the fundamental difference is that one senator committed to an idea or an ideal and willing to fight for it can create change. Uh, and uh, you did that in the context of human trafficking. You made it a singular issue. Uh, you were focused on it like a laser beam. I'm glad to have worked with you on it, but you know, clearly you deserve the credit and it's the embodiment of what you can do in the Senate when you choose to do so. I wanna salute you uh, on that. Um, I've listened to both of your testimony. Uh, with great interest, and we're having a major caucus on Russia right now, but this is important. Uh, so uh, I have questions for both of you, and I hope to get through it in my time. Maybe the chairman will be a little generous uh, with the time. You take as uh, much time as you wish. All right, thank you, I appreciate it. I won't do that, but I, I, I do have some questions. Uh, Ms. Massimino, as you know, there have been serious questions uh, both on the Foreign Relations Committee uh, and civil society organizations regarding the integrity uh, of the past two years trafficking in persons report. Uh, to me, that report is the gold standard, and, and I, wanna uh, I wanna show why it's so important. Mr. Kutcher said the, the reports are important, but what do we do with them? He's right. But the it reports send, uh, begin a template for how we judge countries in the world. The amendment that I got into law, which now denies a country who is in tier three of trafficking any preferential access to the United States in terms of any trade agreement, uh, is incredibly important, a powerful tool. But of course, we need the right type of reporting to ensure that those who are in that category don't get arbitrarily and capriciously removed from that category unless they've done the things that are necessary to, in fact, be removed from it, which would be good for the victims of trafficking in their countries, because that means they will have improved uh, their standards. Now, I, I introduced legislation, bipartisan legislation, with Senator Rubio and Senator Kane and Senator Gardner that makes sweeping reforms uh, to restore the integrity to the trafficking in persons ranking process. 
Uh, I know and I believe there is bipartisan consensus that for reforming the ranking process is a priority that we should address early in this Congress. Can you speak to, uh, number one, your organization's reactions to the 2015-16 TIP report, uh, and uh, what damage, if any, do you think uh, that created, and to the importance of the integrity of the TIP report uh, as a foundational issue for us globally to challenge countries uh, in the world to do what we think they should be doing to end modern-day slavery? Yes, absolutely, and thank you very much for your leadership on uh, on that legislation and on the TIP report. You know, we Human Rights First um, has focused a lot of attention over many years on reports coming out of the State Department that have been mandated by Congress and why it's important for those reports to be basically just the facts, you know, not colored by political considerations. For many years, the State Department country reports annually. We did a critique of those because we felt there was too much political influence going in, uh, across you know, uh, di uh, administrations from different parties, um, but there was too much political influence um, and other concerns going into kind of shading the facts in those reports. So we've been very vigilant about, and I actually I think we stopped doing that critique because we felt that the State Department country reports had improved significantly and were much more objective. The point of reports like that is really to provide a baseline for policy. They're not policy, but they're to provide a baseline for policy. And that's why it's so important that reports like the State Department country report and the TIP report are, are just the facts, really have, um, and are, uh, have integrity. So we were very concerned, as, as many were, um, that there appeared to be movements of, of uh, some countries um, uh, up on the scale without uh, any demonstration or transparency about what the reasons were for that. Um, and, you know, the TIP report has actually been a really important tool for diplomats and others to use. And we have instances where countries, you know, have really been pressured to actually improve their performance um, as a result of the ranking process. So. It's really important to have transparency about how those uh, rankings are made um, and to make sure that uh, countries don't get a free pass just because we have other business to do with Yeah, them. and that's a concern. Yeah. and, and it, it, This is either uh, as important as this committee has dictated in a bipartisan way, uh, which means that you cannot subvert uh, its importance because you have economic reasons with a country maybe to some degree even security reasons for the country. Because when you do that, then you undermine the essence of the importance and the integrity of trying to end human slavery. In that regard, my legislation requires TIP rankings to be contingent on concrete actions taken by a country in the preceding reporting period and that the State Department must specify how these actions, or lack thereof, justify the ranking. A recent GAO study highlighted this is a major gap in the existing TIP ranking process. Would you support such changes? Yes, okay. we would. Mr. Kutcher, let me ask you, uh, extraordinary work, and uh, I heard it just before I had to leave to go vote, your answer to the chairman about having the freedom to go big and take a risk to develop the technology that might be the next cutting edge on how we further help uh, law enforcement and other entities uh, both 
capture those, reclaim those lives that have been lost to human trafficking, capture those who were the traffickers themselves, prevent uh, efforts on trafficking. So how is it that if you could, may, I sit in another committee here on, this, on the finance committee and which deals with all tax trade and, and, and incentives. If there was a way to incentivize that effort by you and others similarly situated, is, is there a specific way beyond letting you go big? Uh, is there, a, is there are, are there um, tax incentives? Are there, I, I think about already the systems you have and I think about other countries, maybe one of the requirements we should have is that other countries should use the best available technology at the time, something that we do not have a requirement to in an estimation as to whether they are moving in the right direction on human trafficking. Can you help me a little bit on that and how we take what you've done and create a, a, a greater uh, opportunity for its uh, deployment? Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, at its core, the reason why most of our partners, private, par private company partners in the space are technology companies, is that they're naturally incentivized to actually do something about this. So for the most, uh, for the most part, there's a CDA 230 that these companies want to perform, they want their tool to be used in the right way, right? And they don't want their tool to be regulated because then it regulates the potential of the tool for good. And, and, and I happen to support that, that notion that it, it, that it is the user that is the, the malicious actor. But in order for these companies to maintain that stance, it is my belief that they have to support efforts in technology to actually grow tools that fight against these, these types of atrocities that are happening on their platforms. And, and so, therefore, we've had extraordinarily willing participants in that effort. I think, I think we've also launched a best practices guide for companies relative to tra trafficking, because, because I, I think that when your employees are involved in this space or your company in some way, shape, or form touches this space, I think it actually affects the quality of your company and the performance of your company in the long term. And so I think having companies become aware of these best practice guides, but I think there's also a larger issue relative uh, to what we call modern slavery. And I think it's actually just in the nomenclature of calling it modern slavery. It's slavery. It's just slavery. It's actually, I think we do a disservice to the people that were slaves in this country for so long and the oppression that they felt in the years following by not calling it what it is. And if we just call it slavery from a nomenclature perspective and acknowledge the fact that just because a person is of a different nationality or, or that they're being sold for sex makes it something different so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we abolished this and we've already done all that we can. I think that, that, I think that will have a giant impact because I think it motivates people emotionally to, to, to actually build things. Um, on the other side, I, I think that these tools are best built in the private sector. Um, and, and the reason why I think that they're best built in the private sector is we're willing to take those risks. Um, and we're willing to create that accountability. Now, when we get to the level where it's becoming a, a fundamental institution to solving the problem, and we have 4,000 law enforcement officials and 900 agencies using the tool, 
Well, now we've shown its effectiveness. We've shown that it can be measured. We've shown that it, it can be improved. And at that point in time, I think it's, it, it becomes incumbent upon the public sector to step up. We give our tools away for free. They're 100% free. I look at it like Facebook. We grow, 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 grow. And at some point in time, we can turn on a revenue model that creates sustainability within our organization. So I think they're best incubated in the private sector. But at a certain point, the public sector needs to recognize that tool works. We need that tool. It's effective. And we can leverage it domestically and internationally to behoove everyone. Thank you. And finally, uh, Ms. Massimino, let me ask you. Your testimony uh, noted a new provision in the bill that myself, Senator Rubio, and others uh, have introduced that requires the multilateral development banks to conduct a human trafficking risk assessment for projects in Tier 2 watch lists or Tier 3 countries as a condition of U.S. support. Now, it's my hope that these assessments can draw uh, together a wide variety of stakeholders from international civil society organizations, local communities, law enforcement, and others to ensure that development bank projects work to combat human trafficking wherever possible. Uh, and uh, uh, I, uh, I hope that uh, uh, as part of that, organizations such as yours would be called upon by the multilateral uh, development banks. But it seems to me uh, that we uh, have done a few things here that are important, but we have a lot more tools at our disposition that we can use. And the multilateral development banks, having a strong tip report, thinking about how we incentivize the technology, uh, either by allowing it to be free, as you suggested, in terms of its ability to go, go big, thinking about the privacy elements so that we ultimately uh, don't constrain it in a way that is uh, unnecessary and maybe even looking at other countries and saying one of the ways in which we'll test whether or not you're moving in the right direction is are you employing the latest available technologies that can help you? And so I, I appreciate what we've gleaned from both of your testimony and look forward to continuing to work with you. Do you have yes, a comment? I, I, I just want to underscore that I think, you know, this provision that you've talked about with the um, requiring an assessment of implementation of anti-trafficking in order to, with the um, development banks, I think is just part of this, what we've been talking about, how you take the data and use it to, uh, to leverage change. You know, there, I, I completely agree with you, Senator, that we have a lot of tools that are not being fully uh, used um, to tackle this big problem. You know, and a lot of what you all have done here um, has, you know, has moved the ball forward between the um, federal acquisition regulations and the statute uh, seeking to implement that, um, making sure that the changes to the Tariff Act get implemented. There's a lot that, uh, that this body can do to take those tools and make sure that they're being fully exploited for good. Um, and that takes a lot of attention. It sometimes takes money. Uh, but... Um, if we can pull this all together, I think that's the way that we're really going to make a dent in this problem. Thank you. And I, I see my thank help, you. help me write the bill, and I appreciate his support uh, alongside well, me. Thank, thank you. you both for being here. And I'm sure the chairman told you he had to go vote. He'll be back any minute now. But um, let me just start. I know you've talked about the integrity and the trafficking in persons report, and I don't know what's been discussed already. But one of the things, that, one of the points I've made, this is always an issue when it comes to human rights, and that is the balance between our geopolitical relations 
and information about potential allies that uh, is embarrassing. And, uh, and I think you would both concur that, first of all, the Trafficking in Persons Report, a lot of people think about it as just a piece of paper the U.S. government publishes, but it has, in fact, been impactful. Uh, part of our role here is to shame those who are less than cooperative in the efforts to tackle this, including people here at home, but also governments abroad. And I just think I want to reiterate what, I appear has already, what appears already been discussed, how critical it is that this report be free from political interference. And to be blunt, the notion that someone could come in and say to the State Department, look, I don't, I don't want to change the tiering of a country because we've got a good thing going with them on some other foreign policy issue and we don't want to offend them. And it is my feeling that that occurred in the last report. That cannot happen again. And, and so our hope is to prevent that from happening. And, uh, and, I, and I would imagine every advocate out there believes that as well. That th these issues are, um, especially since we as a nation are also hopefully being honest about our own internal problems with regards to that. And, and that, let me, the first thing I want to talk about, Mr. Kutcher, is the, and the Thorne website, and again, so you may have talked about this already, it may have been asked, and I apologize, but the website talks about people using the internet to share child abuse material are doing so with seemingly low risk of getting caught. So I'm interested in learning how Thorne collaborates with law enforcement in the United States and around the world, especially with countries that have weak criminal justice systems, to change the sort of behavior with impunity of this criminal activity, and, and at the same time, using that also as a tool to hopefully train law enforcement agencies about victim-friendly procedures. There are places around the world, quite frankly, there have been jurisdictions in the United States that if, for example, someone is being trafficked into prostitution, they are arrested for the crime of prostitution and treated as a criminal as opposed to as a victim. And we've had arguments with law enforcement about that, uh, some of whom argue to us that that's the appropriate way to do it, that's the only way to break them free from the the endeavor, in other cases, uh, I, I've had some disagreements with regards to that, but how is Thorne working to kind of end that cycle of impunity where people think we can do whatever we want, the chances of getting caught are very low, and <coughs> quite frankly, the penalties in some places are not very high? Uh, thank you for the question. Um, the, you know, it, at, at its core, one of the issues uh, with uh, sex trafficking, and specifically domestically, and most certainly internationally, is the lack of attention that it actually gets from law enforcement it, 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 resources? I should say, you know, most uh, most trafficking divisions in police departments across this country are maybe one or two people, and they're understaffed and underfinanced, and so they really are, are. When when we first went in, we were looking at the tools that they were using, and they were going into chat rooms and trying to strike up conversations with traffickers or trafficking victims. Uh, in order to get leads on investigation. So um, we saw, uh, and, and specifically relative to minors, uh, that if we could create a platform or a tool that helped them prioritize their caseload uh, by understanding the, uh, what we call a maturity score of the victim, we could help uh, get the victims as early as possible out of the system um, and, and as young as possible out of the system first. Um, so we've created this prioritization tool. Um, I'd be happy to, to, to show you Spotlight at, at some point in time. I don't want to reveal too much about it because I don't want to uh, uh, risk uh, the enduring power of the platform. Um, but we help them prioritize their caseload. And basically what we're doing is um, just taking this, this 
internet, which is largely anonymous in many ways, and making it far less anonymous. Um, we can track victims as, as they get trafficked across state lines. Um, we can create, it, we have investigation tools that allow us to understand the, the full picture, the full story of the trafficking victim over time and the trafficker over time, which, uh, which is admissible in court, which is really good evidence in, in order to prosecute these cases. And this question is for both of you. It's one of the things that you've heard a lot about, which I find to be one of the most grotesque and outrageous things I've seen, and that's the conduct of Backpage.com. Uh, there was a recent article in the Miami Herald that talked about a, a local organization that's filing a federal lawsuit against Backpage.com, and it found that at my hometown in Miami-Dade, over half the adult victims in human trafficking cases and 40% of minor victims were being advertised on Backpage.com, as you're probably aware the Senate has also conducted an investigation so uh, with regards to that, an issue to report. So following that report, Backpage has closed the adult section in which advertisers solicited services. However, it's been reported that the ads are now running on the dating section. And uh, some are now asserting, and I agree, that this is nothing more than a publicity stunt. And I would welcome both of you to comment on that change. And in the end, didn't they just change the name of the same activity? So, you know, this has been happening long before Backpage. Uh, I think six years ago, I started going after the Village Voice for advertising sex on their platform. And actually, the way I went after them is I went after their advertisers and said, hey, do you know that this is happening? And the advertisers quickly pulled back, and the Village Voice started to have some issues relative to that. I talked to the founder and CEO of Backpage five years ago and said, we're watching. We, we know what's happening. I know you know what's happening. You can either join us in the fight against it or you're going to become the tool for it and and they really sort of didn't want to hear about it. Craigslist on the other hand, uh, the founder Craig Newmark was very willing and interested in, in fighting this and, and was actually distancing himself from what was happening on his platform. We watched, we technically watched the traffic move from the adult section to the women seeking men section. We watched it. We analytically watched it happen moments after it was shut down, moments. So, you know, you, you look at it and you go, it, it's a game of whack-a-mole, right? And the only question that we have is, it's not relative to censoring it, it's not relative to shutting down the internet, it's relative to can we build the tools that are better than their tools to fight what's happening? Um, it, there are sites in the United States that do this other than Backpage, a lot of them, in fact. There are sites internationally that are doing this that are other sites. It, it's happening uh, all, all over the place. It's been happening for decades in print media. We're now just recognizing it for what it is, and I, and I think that that's the most important part, and secondarily to that is, is let's build the tools, let's finance the tools, and let's deploy the tools to fight back. So I think that Backpage has to be held accountable for what they're doing. And one of the things that they're doing right now, there's evidence that shows that they have been doctoring the ads, uh, up to 80% of their ads, to conceal the underlying transaction, meaning that they are not, when they do that, they should not be protected by the law. You know, current law, and there's some good reasons for it, uh, um, says that internet sites that allow third parties to post aren't, aren't responsible for the content of that post. But you don't have to change that law to go after what Backpage is doing right now. 
Um, it appears that they are intentionally altering ads to make underage uh, people look like they are consenting adults, and that is despicable and wrong, and they should be held accountable for that. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Before turning to Senator Coons, Jean Bader-Snyder is here. She's the lady sitting up front. She uh, has been a, an operational leader here. She, years ago, in an airport in another country, saw a young lady that she thought was being trafficked. She went to talk to officials. She came back. She was gone, and it haunted her, and she's committed her life uh, to dealing with this issue. So we thank you for that. We thank you for helping us be in the place that we are today, ready to launch what is happening. And to that, Senator Coons. Senator Corker, I just want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you for taking the experiences that others have brought to you and applying your skills, your leadership, and your passion uh, to mobilizing this committee, to engaging in a bipartisan way in legislation, to fighting tirelessly for funding, and to empowering organizations that have got the skills, the tools, the passion to now go out and make a difference. And I'm excited about the opportunity to continue working with you in this critical fight to end human slavery in the modern era. Thank you for your leadership on this, Chairman Corker. Um, there's other great folks on this committee who've also been leaders on it, um, Senator Cardin, Senator Menendez, many others. Um, as some of you may know, I've uh, spent a lot of my time in Africa as a member of this committee, as the former chairman of the Africa Subcommittee. Um, it is uh, tragic what we know happens uh, to uh, people who are victims in this country uh, and in countries around the world. Um, so I mostly just want to thank you, um, Ashton Kutcher, thank you for your leadership and your innovation. I'm excited to see your tool and how it works and to better understand what Thorne is deploying uh, here in the United States. Um, and you've got some terrific uh, people working with you, Julia, and others uh, who help make this real each and every day. Uh, and to Ms. Massimino, forgive me, uh, and Human Rights First, um, thank you for also providing um, the analysis and the support. Um, there are a lot of great organizations in this space. We need many, many more. The scope of this problem dwarfs the resources we currently have deployed against it. Um, but. You know, look, there are days here that are somewhat partisan and uh, where it's somewhat frustrating uh, and we don't get as much done as we'd like. This is a moment that is worth focusing on because it is a moment where we can recognize significant progress. Um, I am the co-chair of the Law Enforcement Caucus uh, and given what I read in your testimony and what I've heard, uh, I hope we have a chance uh, to talk further about exactly how we get U.S. law enforcement um, better funded, better engaged, better equipped to deploy this tool and these resources, better trained. In my previously, previous life, I was responsible for a county police force, and um, I'm confident that they don't have uh, as much in the way of resources as they would need, uh, and we were a county that was bisected by I-95, uh, and we're on a regular basis. Uh, we had uh, homeless and runaway kids, we had victims of domestic violence, and I'm certain of trafficking as well. Um, and yet could have done much more with more resources. We had one officer um, who did what you're talking about, went into chat rooms, tried to gather evidence, tried to help pursue and prosecute um, child prostitution, child pornography cases, a very dedicated, very loyal, very skilled officer. There are a few more resources today, but still far below uh, what it should be. Um, so I, I just have three questions, if I might. Um, first, I'm interested in how we can expand uh, Thorne's model globally. Um, because I think uh, you've made a significant impact um, so far. But if you look at 
um, the level of resources and training and access in U.S. law enforcement, as we all know in the developing world, um, law enforcement, uh, courts, transparency are significantly less resourced. So I'd be interested in hearing um, how you think further investment uh, by the United States government in the End Modern Slavery Initiative might inspire engagement from our private sector. And I, I think it is exciting, the digital partners and the information technology partners, uh, Susan and others that you've brought to the table here. How might more investment in our appropriations um, leverage significant increased resources from the private sector? And then second, what, what are the limits to Spotlight um, internationally? Um, what are the challenges you face in trying to really scale this up, but in, in countries where mobile technology is now widely available, uh, but where the transparency reliability uh, of the law enforcement system is significantly uh, below what we would hope and expect? And then um, just on a personal enthusiasm, uh, a whole group of us worked together last year, uh, Senators Flake and Menendez and Portman and Merkley, uh, to pass the End Wildlife Trafficking Act. Wildlife trafficking is often viewed separately from human trafficking, but it's really not. Um, and the criminal networks that uh, benefit from wildlife trafficking, from uh, killing and then selling uh, parts, uh, whether it's rhino horn or elephant tusk or pangolins or many others, are often exactly the same criminal networks that are involved in trafficking people. Uh, and so how could we uh, reinforce those two efforts, which at times engage completely separate NGOs, um, but really with the same goal? Uh, which is to end um, grotesque criminal activity um, that destroys and denigrates wildlife and whole communities and enslaves people. Ashton, to the first questions about how we might invest more and extend the reach. Sure. Uh, so uh, these we have two to tools that, that I talked about today that are built and several others that are built and already deployed. Um, as I mentioned, the heavy lifting to a certain extent is done. Uh, the key uh, to the ongoing success of the tools is continuing to iterate on those tools and make them better over time. Um, Senator Rubio mentioned Backpage. They shut down one section of their site and another section pops up. Um, these things become incumbent upon us having a malleable tool that can effectively uh, work in all markets. But now that the database is built and the algorithm is built relative to understanding, uh, of in the contextual understanding of this content, our expansion internationally uh, is uh, relatively simple uh, in so much as we just need to find the environments uh, that are being utilized uh, for trafficking in, in, in those spaces and, and put them into our engine. Um, now, the trick which you alluded to uh, relative to the limits on that uh, is there are some countries where uh, this platform probably won't work, um, but it's incumbent upon us to build the next tool that will work there. Uh, you know, a lot of this trafficking uh, and the exchange, the advertisement of, of sex uh, slavery, you know, happens online. In some sense, there's a benefit to that, right? Because in, in some ways it could be tracked. Um, but building the tool relative to that specific market uh, isn't trivial. Um, we're currently working with international partners. Uh, Canada is using our Spotlight tool. Um, we're talking to the UK about using our Spotlight tool. We think it will be very effective in those markets. Um, and, and our Solus dark web tool is being used in, 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 with, 
in international spaces, I'll just say, uh, by several people. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's proven to be very effective because the same dark web tool, Tor, which was created by the Naval Research Lab, is the same tool that's used internationally. Um, so really just uh, training our database to have an understanding uh, of variable languages and things like that is, is, is fully doable. Um, the limits, you know, the real limit is the fact that, you know, we're only sitting at the identification barrier, right? That's, that is the limit. Uh, we can identify these people. I can identify all the people in the world, right? But if we don't have the right resources on the inbound side and on the outbound side, it's just going to be a cycle. And, and I think having a holistic understanding of the issue and approaching it from, from that perspective is, is essential to actually solving the problem. Um, and relative to the wildlife uh, piece, definitely on the dark web, our tool could be repurposed for specifically that. Um, if, if somebody was so interested and, and passionate about uh, that issue in the same way as, as I'm passionate about uh, solving sex trafficking, our tool could essentially be repurposed for something like that if need be. That's an intriguing conversation. I'd love to follow up on Ms. Massimino. So I, I think the big picture issue here is around the um, risk-reward equation for, you know, how do you, how do you keep people from going into the business of exploiting others through, through slavery? Um, and right now, the, the, you know, this is, as I said, a very low-risk uh, enterprise for the bad guys. Uh, and high reward. So how to flip that, you have to increase the risk. That includes through law enforcement, through reputational and other uh, damage to companies that don't do a good job of getting rid of uh, slavery in their supply chain, um, and, uh, and decrease the reward. So we have to tackle both sides of that. And, you know, as you keep hearing, some of the pieces of this problem really can be solved um, or significantly advanced through increased resources. You know, so on the, on the close to home uh, kind of perspective, in the TVPA reauthorization, for example, it'd be really good to have designated human trafficking prosecutors. You know, there were only 297 of these prosecutions last year. If there were a provision that authorized human trafficking prosecutors in key U.S. attorney's office, I think that number would go up. Um, and they, they could be responsible, kind of the hub, the point person for cultivating the relationships with all the different agencies that deal with this. We have seen jurisdictions with that type of collaboration increases their cases filed by 119% and defendants charged up by 86%. So some of this really is a resource uh, question. You know, I mentioned the federal acquisition regulations. Again, another, like the Tariff Act, potentially transformational um, change in uh, the way we do business, we the United States do business. Um, I think if we were to fully implement those regulations, we need to authorize human trafficking compliance advisors in the council's offices of all these agencies, state, DOD, uh, labor, GSA, all of these places, who would work with the contracting officers and make sure that this is really being taken seriously. So there are, there are lots of, you know, there's a lot of potential here right now that's not being fully implemented. 
and with congressional oversight and attention on all of those. You, you, you all started a lot of that. Now to follow it through, making sure it's fully implemented, I think those could be transformational. Well, Mrs. Massimino, Ms. Massimino and uh, Mr. Kutcher, um, to you and your organizations and everybody who supports them and volunteers with them, I'll just close by saying um, sexual slavery, um, human trafficking uh, is some of the darkest activity that happens in the world. It thrives in dark places. It feeds on dark aspects of uh, human nature. Uh, and I'm really grateful uh, for your work and Mr. Chairman for your leadership um, in shining light on this problem and on bringing to all of us not just hope but confidence that we can solve this. We can address this um, by appealing um, to the light within all of us and by um, coming together in a way that actually brings light to this darkest of subjects. Thank you for your work. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much for your leadership on this issue and so many others. I know that we've got a, a meeting after this to, to build on this and look at some of the tools in private that are being utilized, uh, but I want to thank you both for outstanding testimony, for committing your lives to this issue, for being examples, um, and, uh, and bringing notoriety, um, bringing awareness, if you will, to this issue that plagues us all. There will be some follow-up questions. I know um, you've got a couple of day jobs, and you do too, but there may be some follow-up questions uh, afterwards, and we'll try to keep those to a minimum, knowing that uh, you've got other things that you do in life. But uh, this has been an outstanding hearing. We apologize for there's a lot happening up here on the Hill, as you know, and has been reported. and. Uh, it's taken people in a, in a lot of different directions right now, but uh, this has been a very impactful hearing, and uh, we look forward to building upon it. One of the things that I do wish we could have touched more on is, is I know you alluded to this, Ashton, but the sexual piece and the day labor piece, um, there, there, there are a lot of differences that exist, too, and just some of the cultures that we deal with in other parts of the world and the collection of passports. Uh, I know when we visit countries now, it's one of the first things that we bring up. I'm heading to that part of the world this weekend, but there are cultural aspects that are barriers, and people, again, um, unwittingly, uh, think they're going to a country for a, a particular job for a period of time and end up being entrapped there. And so uh, there may be some questions in that regard, too. But uh, again, uh, the lives that you're leading and the example that you're setting for us, uh, the, your willingness to come here and go right back to, to other work is, is deeply appreciated. I don't know if either one of you, this is a rather informal hearing, wish to say anything in closing, but you're welcome to if you wish. I'd just like to say thank you. Uh, as I mentioned before, this is one of the greatest honors of my life. Um, and I know the work that you all do is strife with conflict and headlines that dominate your time and pull you in directions that oftentimes you don't even want to go. But if we really care about ending slavery, if we really care about doing the right thing here, we'll realize that there will be negative repercussions of our actions. And I think the biggest thing that, that I got out of uh, being here today, I got reminded of 
a story a friend of mine told me about a rabbi named Hillel who was asked to explain the Torah while standing on one leg. And he said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Everything else is just commentary. Lisa. Thank you. Well, I also want to say thank you so much to you, in particular, Mr. Chairman, who really have put this issue on the map in the United States Congress in a way that it has never uh, been before. Um, and now using that uh, awareness, that growing awareness uh, that we all have uh, to end modern slavery. You know, uh, I think it was Senator McCain who said this is not a pretty topic and um, a lot of people particularly Americans, uh, don't like to think about it, uh, don't want to talk about it, and would rather pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, and particularly don't want to see the ways in which uh, we're all complicit in this problem. Um, so you have made that uh, harder for people. Uh, and uh, I want to thank you and all the uh, members of the committee who have done so much uh, to make people uncomfortable about this issue, and that's where it starts. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you both. Uh, been outstanding. We're going to cross walk across the hall, I think, and uh, view um, how some of this uh, that you have developed works so well. We thank you for that. Uh, the meeting is adjourned.